Hello and welcome to another edition of the fundmonitors.com Meet the Manager series. Today I'm joined by Rob Hay. Rob is the um, Head of Investor Relations and Distribution at Collins Street Asset Management. Uh, Collins Street run the Collins Street Value Fund. Rob, thanks for joining me today. Thanks a lot, Damon. Glad to be here. Rob, I think we should start um, first and foremost uh, with uh, performance. Uh, the last six months, particularly uh, January um, through to now, um, has been very choppy in markets. Um, your fund over the last 12 months has performed quite strongly versus the index. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the resilience in the portfolio? And I'm particularly interested in, in, in how you've managed to avoid a couple of the really big months of downfall. Yeah, sure, David. The starting point for us at Collins Street Asset Management is always capital preservation. We're not chasing a market-like return or seeking to beat the index necessarily by a couple of percentage points. Because as you rightly point out, markets can be choppy and there are no shortage of fund managers out there, Damon, that could still deliver a negative return, but not being as negative as the market overall actually show our performance with their fund. For us, the starting point is capital preservation and we go forward from there. And you raise a really good point about the month of January this year. What that demonstrated, and certainly one month doesn't make a fund and we certainly don't invest uh, one month to the next and a lot of your audience, Damon, would be in the same boat there. But what it does demonstrate is how a flexible investment mandate can lead you towards performance outcomes which are very different to the market overall. We are high conviction, but importantly, Damon, we're unconstrained and we're able to see value and invest in it wherever it lies across the ASX and in the absence of those compelling investment opportunities to hold cash as an alternative, which is something that we have done uh, quite a lot over time. Rob, looking forward then, um, you know, there's a range of different things going on and we might talk a little bit about inflation as we go along, but, um, you know, the next six, 12 months is liable to be quite choppy um, still. Um, what are the sorts of things that you're doing in the portfolio at the moment to prepare for that? Um, has there been, have you sort of sold out of anything in particular or is there, have there been any sort of um, sector switches that you've been looking at as a result of, you know, the past sort of six to 12 months and how you're seeing the next sort of 12 to 18 months? Over the last six to 12 months, we've certainly rotated away from those types of companies or sectors which are likely to be heavily impacted by inflationary pressures. And so to that end, we've favoured companies which have very uh, robust and dynamic pricing. So be it the likes of Boom Logistics, for argument's sake, who are able to adjust day rates. You've got the likes of Retail Food Group, National Tire and Wheel and so forth, as well as those companies who have longer term contracts in place, but which might be tied or floating uh, with respect to the underlying commodity. So stocks like Beach Petroleum, for argument, sorry, Beach Energy is one example of that. Mm. And certainly in this environment, Damon, as the low interest rate world begins to unravel and really who would know who could tell how long that takes and certainly how intense that process is. But what we will see are those companies that don't have the ability to adjust pricing or those companies which are behoven to pricing structures they negotiated in more favourable times in the expectation of lower for longer interest rates really starting to struggle. There are other companies, of course, that have inelastic pricing models. They have cost pressures driving them up left, right and centre from employees to suppliers and supply chain issues uh, as a topic all in and of itself. 
but they will really struggle in this environment, Danny. Rob, let's move over actually to, to supply chain issues because it's a big issue um, in a worldwide sense. Um, you know, over the weekend, uh, we were again talking about the cost of fruits and vegetables and, you know, all those sorts of things. And we know that it's starting to bite. Um, that supply chain, what, what sort of effect do you guys think that that's going to have on, on the market and, and where does that push inflation? And, and what do you think that does for, for the powers that be um, managing the Australian economy? If we go down to the company level to begin with, Damon, I think that there'll be some companies that have the ability to deal into it and perhaps they may be able to adjust prices or perhaps they have to absorb a lot more of that themselves. But there will be some companies which simply can't get the sort of stock that they need regardless. And so it's not always a matter of price pushing things up because if you can't get the supply, then you can't pass on the increase in price to begin with. And so that will be a real issue for some. What we've seen are some companies adapting over the course of the last few years in such a way that they have more diverse supply chain management. It may be the case that they can import goods and services and, and the underlying input they need for their Australian businesses from a number of different countries around the world. And those companies that are able to do that will certainly perform quite well and perform quite strongly. In terms of what does it mean at a macro level here in Australia, I think it's going to be a very fine balancing act in that certainly interest rates will have to go up to quash the inflation where it does emerge. But given the level of indebtedness the average Australian has and the amount of lending they have on their household balance sheet, it's going to be hard to see interest rates go too far above and beyond uh, because otherwise there will be a very sharp and severe push uh, into economic uh, downturn for those, those areas. And certainly where consumer confidence, business confidence and the flow-on effects that go through that will be something that uh, policymakers and government will want to avoid. Rob, well, you mentioned in um, one of your earlier answers the fact that the fund holds cash um, and can hold um, large amounts of cash. Um, I know the fund has also held um, convertible um, notes as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the rationale behind that is and, and how... Uh, the team uses those two implements or those two tools in, um, in putting together the portfolio? It's always good, Damon, to have a reasonable cash buffer and not be fully invested at any one point in time because that means that you can approach any new opportunity that pops up from market dislocation, recapitalizations, the like, uh, from a position of strength. You don't have to rob Peter to pay Paul within your portfolio, so to speak. And so for that reason, as a high conviction fund, we tend to like having about 15% in cash because for us, that's one good idea that we can fund immediately and also give us that confidence that we don't have to uh, sell down growth assets should there be a redemption or what have you in the fund. Convertible notes are an entirely different beast. They, it's a little bit, Damon, like having a lottery ticket but getting paid to wait for the draw. They have debt-like downside and equity-like upside and is effectively a loan to the company. And it might be the case that we say, all right, we'll loan you $10 million. Now we'll receive a rate of interest on that loan, but the convertible part is we will negotiate upfront the right to convert that loan into shares in the company, into equity at a time of our choosing, but at a pre-agreed price. So say the share price was $10 today, we may say, look, we'll loan you those 10, that $10 million and we would like the right to convert that to shares at some point between now and the next three years at a price 
call it $11. We're lending growth capital for a valid initiative to refresh a feasibility study or to acquire a new business or some other useful purpose for the money. Now, if a company uses the money well and the shares go from $10 up to $15, then we convert our, our loan back at that $11 price and we can then sell in the market for $15. That being said, if it all goes badly and the company doesn't use the money in the way that we would have hoped or there's a re-rating of the stock, the sector or the market as a whole, then we would simply call back in that $10 million loan for what it is and not convert it to equity. So in many ways, you get to have your cake and eat it too. You've got that downside protection, which is fixed income-like, but with the equity-like upside, should things go well. If only someone would have paid me for all the years I've waited to win the lottery, Rob. <laughs> um, thank you for your time this afternoon. Uh, very insightful as always, and good luck for the rest of 2022. Thanks a lot, Damon. All the best. Bye.